morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning, and it's wonderful to see so many of your beautiful faces here and to be joining in worship with all those of you who are gathering online with us. We are continuing this morning in our Lifestyle of, of Jesus series where we're looking at how Jesus lived his life and how we as his followers, who don't just follow in his teachings, but actually follow in the way that he lived, can, how can we live his lifestyle and incorporate the disciplines and the attitudes that Jesus himself used and employed in the way that he operated with other people around him? Because as I've mentioned in a, a couple of times now, a number of times, many, if not all of these disciplines and these attitudes that we've been looking at actually push against and, and resist sort of the dominant cultural narrative that we find ourselves in. We are, we are taught that things like simplicity and hospitality and generosity are, are good, all of that is good, but the dominant cultural narrative tells us that actually money and possessions and keeping things for ourselves and gaining more and more things and living privately and selfishly is actually much more fulfilling, right? And all of us have been swept up in that sort of dominant cultural narrative, that cultural river, simply by living in North America. It's why most of the time we Christians, you know, don't look all that different, right? We buy the same homes, we buy the same cars, we eat the same food, we behave in very similar ways. But as Eugene Peterson put it, we follow a very different leader. One who in virtually every detail guides us in a way of living that is counter to that of the world. In every detail, Jesus wants to guide us. He wants us to follow him in every detail. Why? Because when we look like Jesus, we look like God. We show the world who God is by looking like Jesus. So we need to reteach ourselves. We need to put effort into this. We need to discipline ourselves through, through thought and prayer to be under the authority of Jesus, under this leader, to sit at his feet, to learn his ways, and to come for him for guidance in all things, even the little things. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at living a life of simplicity. And this week, it's sort of a part two of that. It, it, it naturally flows out of it. Um, what we're looking at today is living generously. So we're looking at Luke chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible with you, or you can now grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 14. Throughout this series, we've been picking pieces out of the Gospel of Luke and seeing all these different ways that Jesus is acting and behaving. We're looking now at uh, Luke chapter 14. We're going to read through uh, verses 1 through 14. Okay? Luke 14, 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you to come will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. 
But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, now, similar to the previous week, this, this isn't a passage that directly shows us that Jesus lived in a generous way. It's not, it's not directly showing that. But the way that we see him behaving in this passage shows us that generosity and generous living was important to him. Here we see Jesus, so in this, in this passage that we just read, here we see Jesus on his way to eat at a prominent Pharisee's home. Okay, so interestingly enough, he's actually supposed to be the recipient of generosity in this situation. But already in verse 1, we see that this somewhat hoity-toity Pharisee is not actually showing true generosity at all. Verse 1 says this, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Oh, the irony of being invited to someone's home for a meal, an intimate setting, in order to be tested. And on top of that, here's a generosity that's only hospitable to certain people. Because when Jesus gets there, there's a man likely begging either at the door of this man's home or probably at the gate, begging at the gate, who's suffering from a a sort of swelling, probably a form of, of dropsy or edema, and has never once stepped inside this man's home or even been looked at. So you can, you can imagine this scene, right? A, a crew of fancy-pants religious leaders come promenading up to this man's house because they've been invited to a party. And Jesus is the only one who notices this suffering man. This whole crew of people, just out of habit, just pass by this guy to go into this man's house to have a feast. And Jesus is the only one who notices this man. Here are a gr- here's a group of Jewish leaders who are the recipients of generosity... And yet none of them shows any compassion or generosity towards this man at the gate. Luke's making it clear here, in other words, that Jesus is the only one in this narrative who is truly living generously. And by that I mean living for the sake of the other. Because the pattern actually continues. So they they all head inside the house. And verse 7, when Jesus noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table... He then tells them a parable. When he noticed, Jesus noticed, he recognized, he he perceived, he detected, he noticed that there was a pecking order in this Pharisee's house. And then rather than offering, which in in this situation, rather than offering the best seats to one another, these guys are all vying for the best seats for themselves. So he noticed, in other words, what false generosity looks like. How easily generosity can be twisted into something that's really just about selfishness and promoting one's own reputation. 
Because this is how actually seating worked in Jewish tradition. And this, this comes out of earlier Jewish writings like the Talmud. To, uh, if you want to throw that image up, this is, um, this is the best that I could do with my paper program <laughs> on my laptop. So the, uh, yeah, you can see that. So the smiley faces depict how happy you are based on how honorable your seat is, okay? So in, in classic Jewish tradition, anytime you invited or anytime you had a banquet or invited people over, your basic piece of furniture was this three-person couch called a tranquilium. And there were a number of them sort of situated in a U-shape, okay? Then you, you didn't necessarily need to just have five. You could have had more. I just couldn't fit more on my screen um, without making it look messy. <laughs> but the place of greatest honor, if you can imagine, was that one right in the middle, okay? That's why the guy's really happy because he's the most honorable person in the room. He's got the best seat in the house. Now, the two next best seats were on his left and his right. And how you would recline at these banquets, you would because you know, in scripture it always talks about people reclining in couches, you would lean back on your left arm. So you'd have somebody, essentially, if you're in the place of honor, you'd have somebody sitting on your left, um, kind of behind you, behind your shoulder, and you'd have somebody sort of leaning over you on your right. So if you can remember, if you think about in John 13, when it says that John, the beloved disciple, was reclining against Jesus, it's probably because he's sitting on his right-hand side, okay? So that's just just a little bit of background there. Now, how it would work then, of course, is that once you had those three seated in that couch, the next best couch was this one on the left. And the next most honorable person was the person sitting in the middle, which is why that guy's pretty happy. And then the two on his left and his right are somewhat happy. Then it would go to that couch on the right-hand side, same thing, pretty happy in the middle, kind of happy on the other side. And then the further you go up, the less happy you become because the less honorable you are. So that's kind of how it worked. So on one hand, there's this, there's this tradition, right, of doing things a certain way. There's habits that were formed over centuries that just make sense. It's just the way that they operated. And let's be real, we still operate sometimes in these ways today. But here Jesus pushes the imperative, not of tradition and expectation, and that's just the way things are, but rather humility. Because he says in verse 11, for all those, oh sorry, he, as a guest, he says to the guests, do not seek to exalt yourselves above others. The true test of generous living actually is to submit yourself, to make it all about the other. And if you happen to be invited to have a better seat, then that's great, receive it as a gift, but don't pursue it. Because he says in verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, okay? All those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's a reality. That's a truth of God's kingdom. As a host, he said, are, are you seeking to further your own reputation? Are you making it all about yourself? Or are you making it about the people that you're serving? Because if it's not about yourself and it's all about the people that you're serving, then don't invite people over that you're just trying to impress. Invite folks over who wouldn't actually expect it? Now, I know that can feel a little bit counterintuitive to us because why would Jesus not want us to invite our friends over, right? I mean, we call them friends because we like spending time with them. Jesus also had friends. But we have to look at the point that Jesus is making here. And the key to that is at the end of verse 12. He says this, if you do, in other words, if you do invite people over that are, you know, friends, family, relatives, rich neighbors, you know, if you invite them over, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. In other words, 
What is generosity when you're expecting to get something back? Whatever it may be, whether it's admiration or attention or a good name for yourself, what is generosity when all you're trying to do is build up your own reputation? Is build up a good name for yourself? Oh, if I invite this person over, then I can make them like me. Or I can, I can try to manipulate this kind of a situation. Or I can talk to them about such and such and so and so and, and further my popularity with them. If our generosity is all about ourselves, of building our own social network and reputation and hopefully getting into the right circles, then according to Jesus, that's not the kingdom. That's not actually who God is. So he says, invite people over, be kind to people, be hospitable and generous towards people, rather, who can't pay you back, who actually can't do anything to make you look good. Think about someone for whom it would make no sense to invite them over, to share a meal with them. What would happen if we all actually followed through on that and invited someone over or showed generosity and hospitality to someone for whom it really just doesn't make sense because it does nothing for us. Verse 14, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is calling these Pharisees to live generously, which is living in such a way that we're emptying out our own agendas and insecurities and, and pursuits and need for affirmation and attention in order to do something actually much simpler. See, when, when the world stops revolving around us, decisions become a lot simpler. Living generously, living outside of ourselves and for the sake of the other is so much simpler. Because you don't feel anymore like you need to prove yourself. You don't feel anymore like you need to get something out of it. Your whole disposition is for the other, not showing off your new Ikea showroom. Again, the, the focus here is on the issue of repayment, right? Is our goal in generosity to be repaid by the admiration and the attention and, and, and the attention and the bedazzlement of others? or to receive our reward from God. What's more important to us? Because when we follow in the way of Jesus, we actually lay down the crushing burden of what other people think. When we follow the way of Jesus, we lay down the burden of other people's opinions because we don't have to be liked. We don't feel that pressure. We don't have to succeed. We don't have to be noticed. There's so much freedom to just give. Just give. Which is why, along with generous living, what often flows out of that is generous giving. In Luke 21, Jesus and his disciples are in the temple courts, and it says that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. So all these rich people are coming in and putting all their hordes of gifts into the treasury. Oh, look at me. And then he also sees a poor widow, and she puts in two very small, notice that, very small, <laughs> two very small copper coins. And he then tells the disciples that this woman has put in more than all the others because she gave out of all she had to live on. She was putting in all she had. See, so the issue here isn't about the amount. 
It's not about how much. It's not about the extent of one's generosity. That's not Jesus' concern. What matters is the attitude and the trust behind it. This woman was living into the belief of an extravagantly generous God, one who she knew would provide for her. She was living into the God and believing in the God of Malachi chapter 3, where God reprimands the Israelites for being stingy and, and not bringing all of their tithes and offerings to the temple. So he says this in verse 10, test me in this. In other words, test my character, test who I am. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. He's reminding them of his generous character. Test me. See if I will not provide for you. If God commands us to be radically generous, extravagantly generous, it's because that's who he is. It's because that's who God is. So we have zero rationale for worrying about giving too much away or fearing that we won't be provided for. In the book of Leviticus, there are, are actually several laws that were commanded to Israel uh, that, that were meant to be a start for generous living. For example, in chapter 19, there's a command for farmers to not actually harvest the edges of their fields or go through it a second time and get all the missed bits, Rather, they're meant to leave all of that for the poor and for the foreigner. Imagine how that would go over today. You just, you go through your field once. You don't even get all of it. You know, you leave some of the edges, you go through it once and that's it. You leave the rest for someone else. Imagine how that would go over today. This is a 4,000-year-old command, and it still makes us uncomfortable. Now, most of us aren't farmers, uh, but there's still ways that we could employ a similar practice. How do we leave space? How do we leave edges? How do we leave space in our, in our fields, in our homes, in our bank accounts for those who need it? Because this law in Leviticus was just a start for Israel. They were given certain commandments. They had to do certain things because that was a start. That would then fuel generous giving. That would then fuel a disposition of generosity. They would learn, they would grasp onto the joy of giving. And then they would do more. It would lead them and encourage them to give even more. My dad used to say this to me, which something his dad always said to him, 10% is just a start. And I think that's the truth for all forms of generous living. What God commanded to Israel was just a start. Whatever little we can do is just a start. Because the more that we do, the more that we build this culture within us, this DNA within us of living and giving generously. Of our time, not just of our finances, but of our time, our resources, our hospitality, our homes. We don't actually see this kind of, of radical generosity in Scripture until the book of Acts. When you have a community that is so filled by the Holy Spirit, the, the, the giving, the generous Holy Spirit, that they share all they have. They don't hold on to their possessions. They, they're not overcome with greed. They're not arguing over what belongs to who. Or David Platt makes this challenge. He says, what if we started giving not just what we're able to give, but beyond what we're able to give? 
What if, like the widow in Luke 21, who gave all she had, we began to give what it hurts us to give? What if we, as individuals and as a church, gave beyond what we thought we were able? Does that terrify us? Or does that excite us? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism in the 18th century, was famous for living generously. While he was at Oxford, he was given every year an income of, it was like 30 pounds or something, and he learned how to live on 28, and he would give two away. But every year, as his salary increased and as he did more and more things, I mean, his salary got to beyond 100 pounds a year, but he continued to live off of 28. And all of the surplus, no matter how much that grew, was given. Richard Foster says this, we need to work at decreasing our operating budget and increasing our giving budget. Because the giving of money to Christ and to his kingdom is a different financial frame than all of our other budget items. This is actually a budget line. You know, other, other things in our budget, whether it's personal or as a couple or whatever, as a family, as a church family, all of our budget lines, we always try to keep the same, right? Or stay underneath it. This is one we actually should seek to increase. A budget line that we should seek to increase as much as possible. Recently, a congregant shared a story with me years ago, years ago. They were pregnant with their first child and had saved 20 bucks, which was, was big money in that day, for buying materials to prepare for this baby's arrival. One day, uh, some folks came to the door, some church folks came to the door, pretty much fundraising for a new Christian school that was going to be built. They were asking for money. Now, this couple didn't have anything other than this $20. And out of what they felt like was a spirit of obedience and generosity, they gave away that $20, trusting that the Lord would provide. It was all they had. And he did. As John Mark Comer puts it, want a more blessed life? Give. Generously. Regularly. In Luke 8, we read that there were many women who were also following Jesus, learning to be his disciples. And it says this, that they were providing for him out of their own means. The implication there being that Jesus himself was the receiver of generous hospitality. Jesus himself could not do his ministry without people providing for him. If we, as his followers, are stingy and possessive of our finances and of the ways that we live our lives, we will be stingy and possessive with everything else. And this should be cause for alarm for us. Because in Luke chapter 11, Jesus chastises the Pharisees for living extravagantly and neglecting the poor as a result. They wanted the best seats. They paid for first class. And gosh darn it, they were, were going to get what they wanted. They were going to get what they paid for. That was a right that they had. Are we, are we different? Imagine for a moment, imagine this. There's an airline that has booked all of their seats for a particular flight. And three or however, three, four classes? How many, how many classes are on a plane? Four? Three? Three? It doesn't matter. Three or four. Three or four classes on a plane, all priced accordingly, right? So, you know, first class tickets are the more expensive. The, the third class tickets are the least expensive. Pretty standard, right? 
Now, imagine that when all of these passengers arrive for their flight, all the seat numbers have flipped. So those who paid for a first-class ticket are now seated in third class. And those who paid for a third-class ticket are now seated in first class. Here's the question. If you were one of those people who paid for a first-class ticket, how miffed would you be? I see a lot of you grinning. How tightly do we hold on to our privileges? I think every single one of us would be a little bit miffed. Why? Because it isn't fair? Because we didn't get what we deserved? What we worked hard to earn? Does it change anything when you see the faces of these people, probably a bunch of poor college students, these third-class ticket owners, who could barely afford a plane ticket in the first place, now get told that they get to go sit in first class. Sure, some of them are probably being all immature about it and hooting and hollering and fist pumping and whatnot. But perhaps another student bursts into tears because it's her first time flying, she's already nervous about leaving home and going to a new place and it's all completely overwhelming for her. And perhaps the giving up of your seat was a great gift to her. Perhaps the giving up of your privilege teaches you a new humility. Perhaps the giving up of your privilege teaches you something about the generosity of God. In John 13, we see the epitome of self-abandonment and generous living because we see Jesus, our Lord and teacher himself, getting down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples. And he says this, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, don't seek to be greater than what I've just done for you. Don't seek to be above that. Don't seek to be more. Don't pursue anything more than being a servant and lifting others up. Stop trying to lift yourself up. Lift others up. Because when you really think about it, how ridiculously easy is it for followers of Jesus to try to be more? To try to be more than who our master was for us? And how misrepresentative of the gospel that really is. So my challenge to all of us this morning is to challenge ourselves. How can we live more generously? What have we always felt nudged to do but are too afraid to do it or have just never made the time or the space to do it? Because when we can live generously, we can live freely, without resentment, without entitlement, without needing or grasping on for more money and possession and attention and being noticed and being liked don't have a hold on us anymore. 
Because at that point, the only thing that has a hold on us is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Shortly after this passage in Luke 14, there's a parable that many of us are familiar with. It's the parable of the prodigal son. This horribly selfish kid runs away, does absolutely nothing to deserve his father's generosity, absolutely nothing. He squanders all of the wealth. He lives a terrible lifestyle. He comes begging back to his father because he's got nothing else he can do. And what does his father do? He teaches his son the beauty and the joy of living generously. Where entitlement and possessions do not matter. Where a feast is always ready for those who have nothing to give back. Where honor is given to those who don't deserve it. It's the unbelievable and always understated and mostly misunderstood extravagant generosity of our God. Most of the time, we call it grace. May we trust in that extravagant generosity and be a people who mirror that generosity to the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Living God, Lord Jesus, we are humbled, so humbled, just by the idea of you coming on your knees before us and washing our feet. Lord, the fact that that is so hard for us to even imagine shows how far we yet have to go to look like you, to mirror who you are, to understand the depth of your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to be a people who live generously, who follow your ways, who look to you in all things. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.